we have spent six weeks together so far looking at the I am statements from John's gospel. We hope you found it encouraging to, to think through the, the gospel of John sort of systematically in this way, thinking about the person of Christ. Throughout this series, we have seen that Jesus is the bread of life. He is the bread from heaven who assures everlasting life. He is the light of the world. He is the radiant presence of God on earth. He is the gate, the only door to eternal life. He is the good shepherd. He loves and knows and keeps his sheep. He is the resurrection. He is eternal life for all who put their faith in him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He calms troubled hearts with the promise that he will bring them all the way home to God. The goal throughout the series really has been to grow in our understanding and appreciation of, of Jesus. It's important to know who Jesus is, the actual Jesus of the Bible, who happens to be the actual Jesus of history as well. He is the, the central factor to everything that we do here at Trinity, of course, but also should be central to everything that each of us do in our lives as Christians. As we'll see in our text today, we can do nothing apart from him. We are absolutely 100% dependent upon Jesus Christ. Everyone is dependent upon Jesus in, in a sense because he is the creator of everyone and everything. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. But for those who are Christians, those who are in Christ, he is our source of life. We can do nothing good apart from him. Perhaps you've noticed a recurring theme throughout these I am statements from John's gospel. Many of the statements circle and revolve around this concept of eternal life, and today's passage is no exception. That shouldn't be surprising, because in the first week of this sermon series, we mentioned that the central theme of John's gospel is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that he gives eternal life to everyone who believes in him. That's the melody line that is playing in the background of the entire gospel of John. In fact, John 20, verses 30 and 31, make it plain for us. It says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, uh, that is to say that's what's written about Jesus in the Gospel of John, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what is eternal life? Just a couple of chapters before this, Jesus tells us, John 17, 3 says this, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus says that eternal life is knowing God the Father and God the Son. But it's not just an academic knowledge. Not just a, a factual knowledge, not merely a mental assent to the fact that, yes, Jesus probably exists, he is there, or maybe even that he exists at the moment. It's more than that. It's a relational knowledge of Jesus, of God the Father. If during this series we have only gained some sense of knowledge about Jesus, my fear is that we've missed the point. We can't know about Jesus. We need to know Jesus relationally, eternal life, doesn't start in the future at some undetermined point. It begins when you know Jesus, when you are in Jesus, when you are abiding in Jesus. He is our life 
as we see in our text this morning. Our big idea from today's text is this. True Christians glorify God by abiding in Jesus and bearing his fruit. True Christians glorify God by abiding in Jesus and bearing his fruit. Before we dive into this, let's pray together. Father, it does me much good to to hear your people singing this morning. Hearing the Spirit in them crying out, declaring, confessing that we need you. We are dependent upon you. Every hour, every minute, every second, we need you. That includes right now. So, Father, would you help us to understand your word by your spirit so that it might abide in us, that we might abide in your love for the glory of your name. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First, verses 1 through 4, Jesus compares humans to great branches. Jesus is using an analogy in this passage, if you haven't noticed. But before this, uh, chapters 14 through 17, this passage of John that we've been in last week and this week of John's gospel, this, this passage is known as the farewell discourse. Jesus is speaking to 11 of his disciples. It's right after the Last Supper. They're in the upper room there in Jerusalem. It's the night before his crucifixion. It's only 11 disciples, not 12, because one has left by this point. Judas has gone out to betray Jesus. But now Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's about to happen in their lives. As we heard last Sunday, he tells them he's going to leave them soon. But he's going to prepare a place for them with the Father. And he's not going to leave them as an orphan. He says when he's gone, the Father will send the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name as a helper. He's going to teach the disciples all things. He is the Holy Spirit. Teach the disciples all things and bring to remembrance the things that Jesus Christ has said. So, As they're facing the death of their Messiah, their rabbi, their teacher, Jesus, he tells them not to let their hearts be troubled, not to let their hearts be afraid, but to trust in God. And now, just as Jesus tells them to go ahead and get up, they're about to go leave the upper room to begin to make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Along the way, perhaps they walk by a vineyard, and Jesus takes this opportunity to teach an important lesson And this is where we see that Jesus says that he is the true Israel. The true vine is the true Israel. Verse 1, chapter uh, chapter 15, verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now, why does he say true vine? Is he just saying that there are other vines, but those are like fake vines? I'm the true vine. Why didn't he just say he was like a vine? If he's trying to use a metaphor, analogy, simile, he could just say, I'm like a vine. That would have worked for his analogy too. There's something else going on here. Why true vine? And why does he, what does he mean when he says that the father is the vine dresser? Uh, vine dresser is like a farmer, the person who keeps the vineyard, keeps track of it, works, works to care for the vines, to cultivate the vines. Well, as usual, some Old Testament context is really helpful here. Let me read Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I believe we have this on your slides as well. Isaiah 5, 1 to 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill 
He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. I will tramp its, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Isaiah was a prophet of Israel, bringing a message of warning and coming judgment to God's people Israel for not keeping the covenant. God expected Israel to live righteously. He was looking for righteousness, justice, judge, uh, and those social justice, justice, righteousness, those sorts of concepts work together in the Old Testament to think about how people are treating one another. And he's looking on at this, this community that he put, this vine that he cleared out of land for them. He expected them to live righteously. But despite cultivating all the elements for Israel to succeed, they failed. So when he looked for justice, he found bloodshed. When he looked for righteousness, he found an outcry. So in his analogy, he was expecting to find big, sweet, delicious grapes. And instead, he found stinking, sour, wild grapes. And it's not just in Isaiah that we get this visual of, Isaiah, of Israel being represented as a vine. It's also in Jeremiah chapter 2, Hosea chapter 10, and Psalm 80, as we have already heard as our call to worship text this morning, all speak of Israel as a vineyard. And most of the time, almost every instance when Israel is called a vineyard, it's a reference to how they're blowing it. It's not a good thing about how they're disobedient, they're faithless, they are fruitless. God had something in mind when he planted this vine, something fruitful. And Israel wasn't it. But there was still a hope of a day when God would restore his vine. So listen to, again, a part of the psalmist's lament in Psalm 80, which is uh, just 14 through 19 from Psalm 80. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we might be saved. So when Jesus says in the Gospel of John that he is the true vine, you really have to know your Old Testament to fully understand what he's trying to communicate to us. He's saying that he is the ultimate fulfillment of the concept of the vine. Israel was the imperfect vine. Jesus is the perfect vine. Jesus is the true Israel in that sense. As we heard in Psalm 80, he is the son of man who would restore the vineyard to what God had in mind originally. He 
perfectly keeps the Father's commandments, and he abides in the Father's love. So when God the Father looks on Jesus, looks for righteousness, looks for justice, he finds it. He finds sweet grapes. Jesus makes the sweet grapes. Keep going into verses 3 and 4. B, the vine dresser disciplines the branches. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So Jesus continues his analogy here in these verses. Do we have any gardeners in the house? Horticulturists? Plant lovers? Anybody grow grapevines? We have a few. So this analogy might be lost on most of us here this morning. The word for vine here is, is grapevine. So he is speaking specifically of a particular kind of plant with this analogy. It's a lot of work to cultivate grapes. When you start the vine, you've got to, you have to train it up in the way that it should go. You can weave it into a trellis in order that it might have a structure to grow up on and be, be fruitful and to, be, uh, to have life in it. You have to discipline the vine. You have to train it because the goal of a grapevine is grapes. Not just grape leaves, but grapes. You want fruit. So if there's a branch that's not bearing fruit, you would want to cut it off because it's, if you leave it there, it would just be drawing nutrients from the other branches that would be bearing fruit. Wasting nutrients, wasting energy from the vine. And if there's a branch that does bear fruit, you would want to prune it. You would want to clean it, take the briars and the thistles away from it. Maybe those suckers that steal energy as well. Some uh, Philo, a Jewish historian, lived around the time of Jesus, writing about this process of caring for, for vines, for grapevines in particular. He says that sometimes a branch gets extra shoots on it, and you have to clean them or prune them, pinching them off. I have an oleander tree in my backyard. I have to do that same sort of thing. It has sucker branches that'll shoot up in there. I have a, a jacaranda in my front, uh, front yard. Got to do the same thing, pulling off those new things. And I used to have citrus uh, at my old house. And it's the same thing with the citrus. You have to, you have to prune them back, cutting them, uh, even in areas where it looks like there's good growth here. Like, this could be fruit. Why would you cut this back? Well, because if you do it, in the end, you actually end up with more fruit. So this analogy that Jesus is describing here, ultimately, is about discipleship. Discipleship is about training. So God the Father trains up those who are in Christ in order that they might bear more fruit. And Jesus says that already his disciples are clean. And the word for clean there in that verse is very similar to pruned. You can think about this analogy of the vine and pinching off suckers and briars and thorns and thistles because of the word that he has spoken to them. So the means by which Jesus prunes his people, God the Father prunes his people or helps his people to bear more fruit is the word. It's the word that he has spoken to them. This is what it says in verse 3. So the means by which God prunes his people or helps his people bear more fruit is the word that he's spoken to them. But it's important to remember, keep in mind here, uh, that Jesus is talking to his own disciples here. And he's talking about the concept of discipleship with this analogy. Because as I mentioned before, one disciple is conspicuously missing from this lesson. 
Judas is gone. Judas has gone out from them because he's betraying Jesus. So there were, it seems, two kinds of disciples. There were the disciples like Judas, who looked like they were true disciples, and then there were the disciples who really did truly abide in the vine. Two kinds of branches, if you will. Two branches with two different outcomes. That's our second point in verses 5 through 6. Two kinds of branches with two different outcomes. Some theologians have actually argued that in, in this passage, there should actually be three kinds of branches. And it's a relatively historically new interpretation, having come about just maybe in the last couple hundred years. But they've introduced a third kind of branch, and it's based on the, the, a word that is used in verse 2. So in, in the Greek, the, the word for taken away, the branch that doesn't bear fruit can be taken away, you could also potentially translate that as lift up. So instead of taking away the branch that doesn't bear fruit, it could be just lifted up. And so the idea here would be that there is an unfruitful believer in verse 2 that is encouraged or lifted up and so is given another opportunity to bear fruit. So you can think of sticking with the analogy, instead of cutting it off, the vine dresser would, would lift it up so that it can get access to the sun and nutrients, that sort of thing. So instead of saying that every true disciple bears fruit, they would say that there are true disciples who don't bear fruit. Ultimately, that there would be two different kinds of Christians then. There would be the kind of Christian who is actually abiding and bearing fruit, and the kind of Christian who is not abiding and not bearing fruit. That there might be a kind of Christian who has accepted Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. The carnal Christian, the spiritual Christian. Now the Greek word behind take away in verse 2, to be fair, could be translated lifted up, but of the 22 times that I found it in John's Gospel, just about every instance has a reference to being taking away. So when they say that take the stone away from Lazarus' tomb or take him away from the cross, this is the sort of word that is being used there. The bottom line is that there is no legitimate basis in terms of the grammar or the context or this analogy to introduce a third kind of branch. I only bring this up because you might have run across this and I don't want you to be drawn into it. It's called higher life theology or Keswick theology, spelled like Keswick theology. It's actually more influential than you might think this passage about abiding in Jesus here, this metaphor, this analogy that Jesus uses in John 15, verses 1 through 11 and onward, this is actually sort of like a central passage that they use in their argument. Because to be, to be fair, the idea of abiding can sound kind of mystical, right? As if there's some sort of secret level that you can graduate to or some sort of secret experience that you can have in order to become super spiritual as a Christian as if abiding isn't something that Christians are already doing by default, by definition. It's something to aspire to, something to graduate to. But the truth is, you either abide in Jesus or you don't. If you do, you're a Christian. If you don't, you're not. John is not known for setting up third categories. If you're familiar with the book of 1 John, you'll know that. You can read it later, check for yourself. It's either one or the other with John. With Jesus. 
It's darkness or light. It is life or death. It is abiding. It is not abiding. There are no third categories. But if you have ever heard this phrase, I bet you have, you might be familiar with this higher life theology. Let go and let God. If you've heard that phrase before, you have been uh, exposed to higher life theology. It's a misguided school of Christian thought. But if that sound, if that phrase, if that concept sounds like something that you would like to learn more about, we have a little book in the bookstall called No Quick Fix by Andy Nacelli. If you've ever heard of this sort of thing before, you can find this online as well, but it's in, available in the bookstall as well, of course. But Andy does a really good job of analyzing higher life theology and explaining how it's unbiblical and could even be dangerous. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but please be aware. So, I take Jesus' analogy to teach that there are ultimately two kinds of branches, two kinds of disciples, a disciple that does bear fruit and is pruned in order to make more fruit, and a disciple that does not bear fruit, resulting in judgment. Let's look at the first kind first. In verse 5, the true disciple bears fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So to be, to be fair, we have no ability, we have no power to do any good except that which comes to us from Christ. The Christian disciple draws his or her life from Christ. So just as this branch gets nutrients and life from the sap being connected to the grapevine, we too have a vital organic connection to the person of Christ. And Jesus says that we draw life from him as we abide. So what does it mean to abide? Now, the word abide could be translated as remain or dwell or stay. It's not a deep, mystical, emotional experience. There's nothing particularly strange about it. Check out verse 4. Jesus tells us a bit about what abiding is. If you have verse 4 there in front of you, Jesus tells his disciples to abide in him and he in them. Look down at verse 7 then. He explains that further. He says, My words should abide in you. And then in verse 9, he says that to abide in him is to abide in his love. And then in the next verse, he shows us, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So, abide in us means this. I believe from the text, the context. Jesus abides in us by his words. And we abide in Jesus when we obey his words. For us in this passage, abiding is obeying. To follow his example of a life of obedience to the will of God. This is what Jesus did. This is how he abides in the love of the Father. And every believer abides in Jesus to some degree. Now, when you hear this, please recognize that the goal is not to be obedient so that you can be grafted into the vine. That might not seem like a big difference. It's so huge. Look down at verse 10. Uh, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So this is not telling us how to become disciples of Jesus. He's saying, since you are in me, and I am in you, we are in relationship one with another. And this is a loving relationship like that between me and the Father. And if you love me, you will demonstrate it through obedience. 
It's the evidence of your love. Our obedience does not earn his love. Can we see that? May there be no confusion here. He loved us even when we were still sinners, right? But obedience is central to discipleship. It's so important that you understand this distinction here. If, there's, if that's unclear, if you want to talk more about that afterwards, please come and talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about it afterwards. And to be clear, there are different degrees of fruitfulness. As we heard Jim confess earlier, there are times, different seasons, even within our own lives, of no harvesting of, of, of fruit, but we're still abiding in Christ. No one obeys Jesus' words perfectly, right? No one keeps his commandments 100%. After all, this is why he says that we have to be pruned. We wouldn't need to be pruned if we were perfectly doing it. It's interesting to note that the vine dresser says that we must be pruned, isn't it? Our father, who is the vine dresser, cuts. He cuts through, through hardship, through sickness, difficulty at work, family struggles, Emotional distress, disappointment, anxiety. It can be painful to be pruned. But it is always for our good to bear more fruit. Now, it's not as, it's not as if just going through hard times automatically makes you more like Jesus. That's not, that's not how it works. Look back again at verse 3. Jesus says that his disciples were cleaned, that is to say pruned, similar word, by the word of Christ. So, as we are afflicted, we turn to the word for hope and for help. And when we turn to the word in times of affliction, it it helps us, it teaches us, it reproves us, it corrects us, trains us in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16 might tell us. In Colossians 3.16, it says that when we gather for worship, when we're singing, like we were just doing a moment ago and we'll do again in a moment, God willing, we're letting the word of Christ dwell or abide in us richly. That's why it's so important that the songs that we sing are filled with the Bible, filled with scriptural language and concepts. We want more Bible because we want more Jesus. The word sustains our life. This is what the analogy tells us. It is how Christ abides in us. The word, when it abides in us, makes us more like Jesus. So hopefully you see the connection between discipleship and worship and singing. They're interwoven concepts. Sunday morning, what we're trying to do is become more like Jesus. This is the the engine room of discipleship, is what we do here in the church on Sunday mornings in gathered worship. Because when the word abides in us, it makes us more like Jesus. And we need him to abide in us. Because as he says, apart from him, we can do nothing. Maybe you've heard the illustration from Paul Tripp before. It's so good, I have to use it anyways. I heard him say it here years ago. It stuck with me. So imagine that you're sitting on your back porch, and you can see over the fence into your neighbor's yard. He's got an apple tree, but his tree is covered with dead, rotten, stinky apples. The tree is obviously dead, and to be fair, you're just about to call the HOA to report him for it. You're disgusted by it. You're sitting there sort of stewing in your anger, but then you see your neighbor coming out of his garage carrying a ladder. He takes his ladder and he carries it over to the tree and he sets it down. What is this guy doing? Maybe he's going to cut it down. This will be good. It needs to be pruned. It needs to be cut down and burned up. 
Then he walks back into his garage and he walks out with a basket, a bucket full of beautiful red delicious apples. He sets the bucket down by the tree and now you're even more confused. Then you watch him go back into the garage and he comes back out with a staple gun. He sets up his ladder, he takes the apples and he starts stapling them to the tree. Now if you saw that, you would probably, first of all, you would probably report them on next door if you have that. But then you would think, I am living next to a lunatic. This guy thinks that if you staple fruit to a tree, it's going to work. That doesn't work. The tree is dead. You can't staple good fruit to a tree and make it alive. And so it's really, ultimately, it's only a matter of time before that fruit turns rotten. The tree must have life in order to truly bear fruit. We cannot make our own fruit. We can't do anything that pleases God, which is to say anything that is good and acceptable to God apart from the life of Christ in us. Now, we might be able to staple some apples to our dead tree, but the vine dresser is not fooled. Look at verse 6. The superficial disciple bears judgment. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Throughout Scripture, to be fruitless is to not have life. Hear the words of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 through 20. It says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Again, remember the context here of Jesus in this story as he's explaining this to his disciples, 11 of them. One has gone out from them because he is not of them. Judas looked like a true disciple. He seemed to be abiding in Jesus, and it appeared that his word was abiding in him. But he was a devil, according to Jesus. And it's not just Judas. Uh, John chapter 6, earlier in this gospel, Jesus explains that he's the bread of life. And he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and people kind of get weirded out. And so some of them turn and no longer walk with him. Some of his disciples, who had walked with him for a while, turned and would no longer walk with him. They stopped no longer with them. So this would be the, the superficial disciple. Looks like a disciple, not really a disciple. More of a professor of faith than a possessor of faith. Though the branch was on the vine, it was really dead. So when the vine dresser cuts them off of the vine, he's just making visible what is already actually true. They were not underperforming disciples whom he decided to cut out. They were not actually disciples. That's important to note. This verse is actually unsettling when you slow down to think about it. The one who is not abiding in Christ is burned. The language here appears to be referring to judgment uh, of hell fire. It might be that it's just an analogy and we don't want to press it too far, but that reading would be consistent with what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Just after Jesus says that you'll recognize disciples by their fruit, he says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, 
will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many wonderful works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we have to have a category of people who profess to be united to Jesus, who claim to believe him, but have no fruit. And Jesus says that they will be subject to eternal judgment. Let me clarify it just again, though, because this is really important. This does not appear to be speaking of true believers. We know this because Jesus very clearly throughout this gospel says that no one snatches his sheep from his hands. He does not cast out any who are his own. So if you're not sure whether you're a true disciple or not, you should reckon with that fact. It's possible that you're not. But don't be afraid. Don't, don't wonder if you're going to be able to do enough or create enough fruit in order to be saved. That is not how it works. Strengthen your grasp on Christ. Abide in Jesus' obedience. His obedience is ours. Your assurance of true faith has to grow out of your faith in the ability of Jesus Christ to save you, not your ability to make fruit. You're not justified only when you begin to manifest fruit. That is legalism. That is not the gospel. This whole thing pivots around this presence or absence of fruit. So what is fruit in this analogy? Let's look at this last portion of the passage. Third, God's glory, our obedience, and our joy are vitally connected in Christ. I'll read these verses again. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. Notice the connection here between God's glory, keeping Jesus' commandments, and our joy. I'll ask, do you typically think of God's commandments as being gracious? Certainly the commandments can be scary because we, we recognize when we see them that we cannot fully keep them. There's a sense in which that is definitely true. But do you see the graciousness of the commandments in that they lead us into the fullness of joy in our relationship with God? God brings himself glory by bearing fruit in us. And this has always been the hope of humanity. If you go back to Genesis, uh, Genesis in the beginning, when he created Adam and Eve, the very first thing he told them is to be fruitful. Fruitfulness, flourishing, is always what God has intended for his creation. And it appears that it's always what he has intended for his new creation. It's not just his creative purpose to be fruitful, to flourish, to have life, but also his redemptive purposes in Christ. And it is good. We glorify God by bearing much fruit. Uh, this is the catechism question that we asked on, on Wednesday night in class. Question six from the New City Catechism. I'll ask the question. You all can together give the answer. 
How can we glorify God? Do you see how that coheres with what we're seeing in John 15? We bring glory to God by being fruitful. Being fruitful is obedience to Jesus' commandment. Galatians 5, and 23 also is important here as we're trying to think about what fruit is. It gives us a list of what the fruit of the Spirit is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But even here, within the immediate context of John 15, we get a picture of what fruitfulness looks like. Fruitfulness is obedience to Jesus' commands. Verse 10 says, Fruitfulness is a fullness of joy in verse 11. And if we skip down a little bit further beyond where our sermon text is into verses 12 through 14, it says that love for other believers is fruit. Loving others like Jesus loved others. Because at the end of the day, any fruit that we produce is Christ acting in us. Those sorts of fruits, do those sorts of things sound like something that you want? Our efforts towards keeping ourselves in the love of God are empowered and met with what D.A. Carson calls the pulsating life of the vine that courses through our veins. And Jesus says that if his word abides in his disciples, they sincerely desire to live according to the will and commandments of Christ. Whatever they wish, with the goal of bringing glory to God, it will be done for them. So do you want fruit? Do you want to glorify God? Is this something that actually sounds at all interesting to you? Do you see it as being a good thing to have fruit? Do you think that joy and obedience go together? I'm afraid that we think of obedience to Christ as stifling our freedom in some senses. As if by showing us what is good, teaching us how to live, is somehow withholding something from us or constraining us or restricting us from the good life. Oh, friends, obedience is the good life. If you trust the goodness of Jesus, if you believe the goodness and the righteousness of God, you'll trust him when he says, abide in my love and keep my commandments and you'll have joy. God's glory our obedience and our joy are not at odds. They go together. Don't buy the myth that freedom is found in being the captain of your own ship. Freedom, Christian freedom, is the joy of knowing that you can trust and obey in the creator of all things. The one who laid down his life for you. There is no greater love than that. Abide in that love. Remain in that love. Reside in that love. Keep in that love. Israel couldn't be fruitful. But Jesus can. You can't be fruitful. But Jesus can in you. If his word abides in you, and if you abide in his love, you will joyfully bear much fruit and bring glory to God. Let's pray.